0: We are uh, making our way through 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to Corinth, and so we're going to look at chapter 4 today, kind of on this pace where we're kind of clipping through it. I don't know that we'll be able to maintain this pace, but we're going to look at the whole chapter today, God willing, in a message that uh, I have entitled, Abandon Arrogance, Embrace Godly Instruction. Man, that's something we could all stand to do, Right? I mean quit thinking that we are you know something more than we are and just receive instruction humbly from the Lord. And so let's take our hearts to the Lord. Father, we just say thank you for gathering us together. We thank you, God, for your faithfulness. You are good to us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would in this moment just respond appropriately and taking heed to you and just giving ear to you, God. And and I would ask, Lord, that whatever challenge you want to lay before us, whatever change you want to make in us, God, that we would just say, have your way. Uh, Just pour your spirit out, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Guys, it was just over Oh, 1,000 years before Christ when God said to Samuel, I want you to go to the house of Jesse the Bethlehemite because I have provided myself uh, a king among his sons. I've provided for myself a king among his sons. And so Samuel uh, fills his horn of oil so that he might anoint the king and he, and he heads to Bethlehem. And he gets there and he tells you know, Jesse, what's going on? And so Jesse takes his oldest son and he sits him before Samuel. And Samuel looks at him and he says before him, he says, man, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. You know, in other words, man, this young man, he just looked kingly he was strong he was stately he was good looking he was the the full meal deal the whole package you see he just had it all going on but the lord said to samuel do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because i have refused him for the lord does not see as man sees for man notice looks at the outward appearance but the lord looks at the heart You know, you can fast forward a 1,000 years to the time of Christ or Paul and then fast forward another 2,000 years and nothing afterward has ever changed. During Paul's day, men were judging based upon outward appearance and still today, all this time later, human nature remains the same. When it comes to ministers, when it comes to ministries, man looks at the outward appearance but God looks at the heart. It's the principle that Paul has been trying to pound into the Corinthians as we come out of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, you know, they believe they have this let's just say christianity thing wired. I mean, they've got it all figured out. They know who's blessed. They know how they're blessed. They know who's who, who's better than all the rest, and they're exalting this teacher and they're they're putting down that teacher and they're drawing lines and they're taking sides and Paul says, "You know what? You're carnal. You think you're being spiritual, but truth be told, far from maturing, you haven't yet even established yourselves in the basic principles of the word of God. You are babes, spiritually speaking, and that's evidenced by the divisions and the dissensions, how you're drawing lines and taking sides, all of these things happening in the congregation there of Corinth. And as chapter 3 comes to a close, he says in verse 21, Therefore let no one boast in men. You know, be it Paul or Apollos or Peter. He's like, man, we're not competing with one another. We're co-laboring together. We're all working together. Just be blessed and receive the benefit that comes from whatever role or responsibility that God has called us to in your lives. Because all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. And so with that, let's turn our attention, he says here in verse 1 of chapter 4, "...let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful." And So he says, "So let a man consider us in this way, after this fashion. What is the proper and, you know exaltation, humiliation, you've got these, these uh, kind of uh, extremes going on. And what is the proper perspective of the Christian concerning the pastor or the preacher or the evangelist? You know Is it okay to regard your favorite preacher in some sort of a celebrity status? You know that's what the Corinthian Christians were doing, and Paul says." No, 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 no. Listen, proper perspective will see the ministers of the gospel not as celebrities but as servants. Now again, in Paul's circumstance, there were these extremes in the midst of the the congregants of Corinth, uh, and and today we see it as well. But it wasn't just that they exalted Apollos, you know. I mean, that's one thing, uh, for example, but it was also that they completely put down and disrespected Paul. It's like they were either all in or not in at all when it came to who they thought was the man uh, of God as far as their opinion was concerned. But There's to be a balance in the heart and mind of the believer pertaining to preachers and ministers of the word of God. And so he says, let a man, the phrase is, so consider us as, notice, servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. This is the rational, reasonable way to recognize those in Christian leadership. First of all, as servants of Christ. Now this word servant isn't the what we might consider to be standard or common word doulos or douloi that we find so often in scripture. It's the word, and I'm probably going to assassinate the word, but the word uh, huperetes, okay? Not necessarily the lowest class, though it's definitely not a, a glamorous position. Literally the word speaks of an under rower hooperettes an under rower you know there you are and, and uh, you've signed up uh you've enlisted in the ancient roman roman navy you want to be all that you can be you want to sail the seven seas and so there you go and you enlist in the in the roman navy and uh they enlist you as a hooperettes and so you go to the ship and they say hey here's where you're going to be and you go underneath the deck and you grab an oar. You've seen those ancient ships that have the oars sticking out the side of them. Well, that's where you go. You go under the deck, you grab an oar, and you start rowing. Not really a glamorous position. You're not setting the course. You're not determining the direction. You're simply pulling or rowing in the direction that the captain has determined. That's what a minister of the gospel does. The captain of the ship, Jesus Christ... Yes, has already laid course. The direction has been determined. Ours is simply to get the oars in the water and row, knowing that His direction will bring us to the right destination. We follow Him, we go His way. I am the way, He said, right? And we find ourselves ultimately arriving in the haven of heaven. And so Paul is telling them hey, we take our direction. And when necessary, our correction from Jesus Christ. We're nothing more, nothing less than his servants. Now beyond that, he says, we're stewards of the mysteries of God. Well, what is a steward? Well, perhaps, probably, in, at least in my estimation, it comes most readily to mind for me. The most famous steward, biblically, was Joseph. There in Potiphar's house. You know, the steward is over everyone. He's over everything in the house with the exception of the master. All of the resources of the master are at his discretion. They're at his disposal. He's responsible to share the wealth with the family, you see. He, he's going to uh, provide, he's essentially managing everything, which means ultimately, eventually, he will be called to give an account, yes, of how he handled his master's resources. And so in relation to the master of the house, the steward's a slave. But in regard to or relation to every other slave of the house, the steward is the master. Ladies and gentlemen, I will concede that our view of slavery has been, and I might add rightfully so, tarnished in many ways by our own nation's sordid involvement of slavery historically. But I just want you to understand this point, and that is that in the ancient world a person could be a slave And really, you know, and and have a tremendous amount of authority and personal responsibility, as I said, over all the resources and responsibilities of the master's house. He would essentially manage everything, the family concerns. He would be the one who would make sure that meals were put in place. He would receive payment uh, from the debtors. He would uh, give payment to the creditors. He would oversee every detail to the benefit or detriment of the master of the home. And therefore, as you can see, it was absolutely imperative, our word is scripturally here, required of a steward that one be found, what's the word? Huh? Faithful. Faithful. Oh, it doesn't say that he must be found popular, right? Right? He may not be popular among the other servants or even the other members of the household, but so long as he pleased his master, he's a good or faithful steward. And this is one reason, you guys, that we find Jesus so often emphasizing the essential need for faithfulness among his followers. He said things like, who then is, notice, a faithful, who's the faithful or the wise servant? Notice wisdom and faithfulness kind of run hand in hand. Who is the faithful and wise servant? whom his master made ruler over all his household to give them food in due season. Who is this guy? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, notice, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you, he will make him ruler over all his goods. I want you to notice that wisdom and faithfulness and faithfulness is equated with the efficiency or efficiently managing the master's resources. Okay? In so doing, he said, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Guys, this is an important point to think through because I've discovered that some people think, well, you know, if I, if I ever get involved to that capacity or if I was ever asked to do that, you know, uh, if, if there was ever a place where God really was using me, then I would, you know, cut this out of my life. I would sacrifice that. I would really seek to lead a life set apart to God or live this way or do that thing. But right now, you know, things are so small scale and really unnoticeable in my life. That, you know, what does it really matter? And so they just kind of do their thing. They have their little compromise, but they're not really serving. You know, they're not really doing these things. But if, man, if they were, you know, then they would. But God says, listen, if you won't be faithful in the days of small things, you know, you're willing and ready to compromise when you feel like there's inconsequential, non-essential things happening in your life, then nothing's going to change when you think you're on the big stage of life, quote unquote. You see, we're either faithful or we're not It's not a matter of what we have, it's a matter of who we are. Does that make sense? The amount of what we've been entrusted to has nothing to do with it. It's a heart issue, it's a character issue. Remember this verse we looked at last week, Peter said, as each one has received a gift, you know, he talked about, Jesus talked about the talents. One to this servant, three to this servant, five to that. So he, he, everyone's received a gift. Notice, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. In other words, listen to me. This is important for you personally. God has entrusted something of his resources to each and every one of us. There's, there's zero exception. If Christ Jesus is ruling in the in the you know he's on the throne of your heart if he's if he's saved you if you've you know come to know him then he's given a gift to you spiritually speaking. And if we want to be found faithful or good stewards then we are to manage our master's resources. That is we're to minister it to one another. Guys, be a blessing to the body of Christ. Faithful, and not necessarily that doesn't just limit itself to this building, though that's a great place to start. We are to minister one to another. Why wouldn't we? We're all here collectively. Here we are. Why wouldn't we just do what God's calling? I mean, in other words, there should never be a want in children's ministry or media ministry or grounds or ushers or great. I mean, we should just have this heart to want to just serve the body of Christ. Because what you do unto the least of these, Jesus said, you do unto me. We have this opportunity to serve the Lord through serving one another. And look, they come to you. Here they are. You don't got to go out. You don't got to go look for them. You're right here, you see. So this is a great place to begin. But faithfulness is found in so doing or ministering according to the gifting that God has given you. And of course, we all want to hear those words from our Lord, don't we? Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So now you're beginning to understand the picture. When Jesus is talking like this, this is the the culture, the context out of which he is speaking and into which he is speaking into our lives. And so the primary issue isn't, well, is Paul popular, right? Or who's the best preacher, Or who seems to be the most gifted? The question simply is this. Have these men been faithful? Has your pastor preserved, protected, and dispensed the truth of the word of God, the ways of God? Because at the end of the day, you guys, that's what's required. Family, let me just say it. Faithfulness is such a key. And it really doesn't matter what context, you know, whether it's marriage. How many of you just say when it comes to marriage, faithfulness is a key? Come on, right? Or ministry, or whether it's, you know, there you are as an employee, or, you know, Christian leadership, or really any, you know, facet of life. Follow through on your commitments. Be someone who can be counted on. The Lord is looking for faithfulness, okay? Now, in verse three he says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself. I'm not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord And therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, notice, who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. (laughs) Okay, let me turn my, uh, put my iPad on airplane mode. My lovely wife sending me lovely texts. And that's why it's going, like I tell you all to silence your stuff and then like mine's going off, right? So, let's see what she said. Who wants to see it? (laughs) Come on, somebody. This is a faithful marriage right here. (laughs) I love you, baby. I'm not going to show you the other one. No, it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It wasn't bad. Where was I? All right. Three to five. Faithfulness. Each one's praise will come from God. Now, as I say, so we're talking about the people judging, right? Uh, Evaluating. And they had their own standards by which they evaluated these men, as do people today. Paul was under the microscope of Corinthian criticism. And yet he says here, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. You know, everything about Apollos is, is wonderful. He's, he's so charming. He's such a powerful orator and presenter of God's word. You know, Paul, uh, he's kind of homely. You know, he's uh, fairly simple. And quite frankly, I mean, I mean he's, he's boring to listen to. I mean, I think, now listen, you and me, we have this perspective of Paul the Apostle. And in my opinion, it's appropriate. I mean, he was, he was an incredible man of God. What we wouldn't give to sit and listen to his tutelage, you know. But I mean, you know, go back to the book of Acts. There he is. He's preaching. He's going on and on and on. You guys think a 45-minute sermon is like something to like really endure. This guy was going on hours, hours, and hours. Finally, a dude just falls asleep, falls out the window, and dies. <laughs> I mean, he didn't keep him riveted. Now, of course, he went and he prayed over him. The guy stood up and he's like, well, let's finish the Bible study. And the guy was like, oh, man, really? Because, no, I don't know if he was like that. but But he says, hey, you're free to think what you want of me. It really doesn't matter what you think. Now, guys... It's not that Paul was calloused or contemptuous of the opinions of others, nor was he immune to the estimation of others. What he's saying is that what people think of him does not direct him, okay? He's not making decisions regarding the ministry that God has entrusted to him based upon the opinions that people have. Are you following me? He recognizes that pertaining to Christian leadership, one day, you know, you're the answer to people's problems. The next day, you're the cause of everyone's problems. It just just happens like that. It's unbelievable how quickly people can go from standing by you to walking away from you or even turning against you, just being done with you altogether. You know, you've known them for years, and at the drop of a dime, they exit your life never to be seen or heard from again. You've poured into him, you've loved on them, you've opened your home, all the stuff. And so Paul's like, look, I'm doing what God's called me to, and I'm not going to apologize if that's not good enough for you. He says, Listen, I don't even judge myself. You know, I don't know of anything that I'm doing wrong. But I want you to notice, he says, no, nah, I'm not saying I'm justified by this. I'm not justified by, by that, you know? In other words, he's saying, I know I'm not sinless. You know, I'm not claiming to be perfect. He's simply saying, you know, look, I, I have blind spots, just like the rest of us do. If he's made aware of of an issue, then, you know, he takes it to the Lord. He repents of his sin. But as it pertains to his ministry, he says, man, honestly, I have a clean conscience. I don't know of anything that I'm doing that's like, uh, you know, unbiblical or unscriptural ultimately, though, he recognized that his judgment would come accurately. In other words, he's saying, you, you obviously don't you know, you, you know, know what's happening in me. I, I'm not even sure, always, you know, this is why we say, search me, O God, right? And, and, and know me and try me and know my anxieties. Reveal to me if there's any wicked way in me. Lead me, God, in the way everlasting because I might be too hard on myself. I might be too easy on myself. I might justify myself, you know, where I wouldn't other, and all these things. And so he says, you know what? My judgment ultimately will become accurately from God. Now, guys, I want to think this through for just a minute. Can or should Christians today adopt this same attitude? You know, little to no regard for what any other Christian thinks about us, just have that You know, hey, man, I mean, I agree with Paul. He who judges me is the Lord, you know, kind of an attitude. Uh, Listen, I think that this is where we have to be careful to not take apart. That is, take, isolate, take a part apart from the whole. Are you with me? Not take, isolate one little section of scripture, one little statement in scripture, and build an entire, like, uh, you know, defense mechanism uh, out of it or a justification kind of situation from it. In other words, Paul, let's remember, is speaking from his personal apostolic perspective. I am not an apostle. You are not an apostle. Imagine if the Corinthians responded when he says, look, you know, your your judgment of me, your estimation concerning me, it really doesn't, it doesn't amount to a whole lot. Well, what if they just said, well, Paul, what you think of us, we don't really care either. You know, listen, Paul would snatch those guys up by the lapels and remind them that as their spiritual father, he has every right to correct their behavior and their inappropriate attitude. There's something different. There's a different dynamic here. Today, <coughs> excuse me. You may see a shirt, perhaps see it tattooed on someone's chest or their arm or their back or something, you know, this this concept, this phrase, something to the effect of, you know, God is my judge, or only God can judge me. And, you know, there is certainly a sense in which that's true. But guys. As a general rule, people utilize that saying to get other people to stay out of their business when the truth is so often times the way that God confronts us over sin in our lives is through other godly people. You know, there's something that needs to change in us and God will confront us but many times he uses other godly people to do that. Now, does that mean that that other person is on a pedestal or somehow more spiritual than you because they've come to you and they're talking with you about some sin that you know, they've been praying for that's just obvious in you? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It just means that God wants to speak to you on a matter in that moment. Believe me, he knows how to get their attention just the same. It's crazy you start talking with someone and all of a sudden, well, you and this and that, and, I, and it's like now all of a sudden, this isn't about me. We're not talking about me right now. We, we can talk about me, but not right now, right? And they'll try, to, they'll try to point things out that they believe that, why, to get the attention off of them and to justify their own position. Look, you can find all sorts of sin in me, but that's not going to justify the sin in you, our standard, you know, that's why we'll see later on in this book, he says, we err when we compare ourselves amongst ourselves. I'm not the standard. Jesus Christ is the standard, right? And we all fall radically short. We all should be hungry to grow. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? And so the totality of the council, I was talking with someone about that this week, how people can take just one little verse, and they build an entire doctrine on it. But we, that's, that's, not, that's not the appropriate way to rightly handle or rightly divide the word of truth. We have to understand the totality of the counsel of the word of God. Are you following me? And the, and the totality of the counsel of God's word teaches us that we're to use discernment. We're to use discretion. And dare I use the word judgment, as it pertains to what's right, what's wrong, and how do I go about navigating those waters and even bringing, you know, correction when the need is present? Because Jesus said this, do not judge according to appearance, but to the positive, oh, what's that word? Oh, my goodness. Jesus was not politically correct, was he? Jesus said we're to judge? Hmm. With righteous judgment. And so here's all I'm saying. Let's be careful not to use these verses to cultivate a self-righteous independence of people. The Bible's clear, you guys. Iron sharpens iron. Are you with me? As the body of Christ, we are to encourage, we are to exhort one another that we might grow in godliness. You know, provoking one another unto good works, the Bible says. We're to speak the truth in love. That's not what was happening here. These guys were judge, jury, and hangman. The trial hadn't even begun. That's what he's saying. The evidence hadn't been presented. He says, look, don't judge anything before the time. It's like they're judging a contest, handing out awards. The game isn't over. But when we stand before the Lord, you see, It'll all become clear. Jesus won't judge works based on the way it looked to everyone else. My, he carried himself so proper. Man, he always looked so neat and clean, you know, kind of a thing. But according to the motives of the heart, God, he says, will bring to light the hidden things, you know, those things that no one else could see or understand that add depth or create context in your heart, in your mind, in your life. He reveals the counsels of the heart. And then each one's praise, notice, will come from God. In other words, God will reward you accurately and appropriately, regardless of what anyone else saw or thought they knew. Okay? Now, look at verse 6. He says, Now these things, brethren... I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up or prideful on behalf of one against the other. He says, look, I've spoken figuratively here using words like stewards and servants, and I've applied them to Apollos and myself that you might learn not to think beyond. This is so important that we learn not to think beyond what is written. In other words, you and me, we are to learn to have a biblical worldview, okay? We're to have this, we're to keep our thinking scriptural, not go beyond the word of God. Now in this context, he's talking about when it comes to judging ministers or ministries, you know, it's common for people to evaluate a pastor or a preacher And I'm just going to say it using unbiblical standards. Man, I love that guy. He's hilarious. Well, that's neat. But I'm just going to tell you funny isn't a biblical qualification to be a pastor. You don't have to be funny to be a pastor. Man, you know, uh, that guy is charismatic. I mean, you know, when he, when he tells you the story, it's like he just pulls you right in. It's like you're right there in whatever point in history that he's talking. You feel like you've just kind of got this bird's eye view or that you're kind of standing outside watching it all happen, you know. And well, you know what? Uh, that's great. I'm glad you love that. But charismatic storyteller is not a biblical qualification. But people will judge a pastor on the basis of how entertaining he is, how good looking he may be, I nailed that one, but the other's not so much, but that one I kind of feel confident in, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding, you know, but they'll judge him based on the fact of whether or not he's, he's, you know, able to really, you know, market well, or, or if he's good at sales, you know, he can really pitch the thing or grow the this or the that, and guys, that's to think beyond what is written, do you understand that? Of course, today, you know, we, that's why I was talking about the biblical worldview, because people will justify behavior in their life. Well, the scripture doesn't say this, so this must be okay. No, that's to think beyond what's written. Okay? But if that's the way that we evaluate pastors or preachers, then it's easy to see, isn't it? How one might like one, not like the other, be drawn to one, unamused by the other. You know, you're judging based upon bad, unbiblical standards. Guys, the questions to be asking are questions like, does this man teach God's word contextually? You know, does he present the gospel accurately? Um, Is he an example? Does he feed the sheep faithfully? You see, guys, I fear that even Paul himself wouldn't be hired or liked by many churches today. Yeah, I mean, this guy, he was not up on the entertainment he didn't present himself with all the latest fads and fashions i mean he'd go to town and riots would start he was in and out of prison and he's applying for your church (laughs) you know he just didn't fit the mold uh, uh, of what many people look for in a pastor now taking for granted that your pastor teaches god's word you know demonstrates god's ways listen, it's okay in that regard to even appropriate to honor the man, right? The Bible says, render honor unto whom honor is due. We're to obey those who rule over us. We should pray for our pastors and leaders. But listen to me, there's a vast difference. And I want you to understand this. There's a vast difference between honoring someone and exalting someone. Are you you following me? Okay, we can honor those who rule over us, but we exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is worthy of all blessing and all power and all praise. Are you with me? Okay. Verse 7. Guys, we're gonna, we'll are gonna be picking up the pace. Don't, you're like, man, you're doing this Paul the Apostle hours thing. <laughs> Stay with me. Don't sleep on me. Verse 7. For who makes you differ from another, and what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received? In other words, when he says, who makes you different from another, it's like, how is it that, you know, this person has a gift of prophecy, this one has a word of knowledge, this one can teach, this one has administrative role, you know, how, how does that happen, Did you gain that gift through proving yourself worthy? Did you earn it through hard work and devotion? No. The fact that one is used here and another is used there is based solely upon the grace, the goodness, the mercies of God, His providential plan and how that weaves into our lives and, and, and everything. James said it like this, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. In other words, if something good, if God has gifted you, you know, if, if there's a gifting in your life, it's because God has given it to you. To the Philippians, Paul said, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So if it's God who works in you, if he's given various giftings to you, then why are you all prideful like you're the cat's pajamas, right? That's what he's saying. It's like you're carrying yourself like, man, you've really you know, got your act together. But Paul is urging proper perspective. Listen to me. The Corinthians were of the perspective, we're so great, even God blesses us. But Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Here's the perspective. God is so great that he's blessing even us. Do you understand the difference? Humility should be the overflow of understanding that all that we have has been given to us by God because of his grace. Not because we're great. Not because we've earned it. Not because we've somehow merited or deserved it. It's not we're so great that even God blesses us. It's that God's so great that he blesses even us. You are already full, he says. You're already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish that you did reign, that we might also reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You're distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst. We're poorly clothed. We're beaten. We're homeless. Imagine this guy coming to your church and saying, I'd like to preach a sermon. He says, and we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. Well, back in verse eight, Paul is using a little, you know, what we might call sanctified sarcasm. You know, oh, you are full. You know, you have it all. You've attained the position. You're reigning as kings, looking down on others, making judgments and all. You've become believers through us, but somehow you've transcended us. You've risen above us. You're better off than us, he says. Reminds me a little bit of Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17. You can just write it down and look it up later. But Jesus was rebuking the Laodicean church because, you know, they thought they were wealthy and they were rich and they they had need of nothing. They didn't realize Jesus said that they were naked and poor and blind and miserable. And guys, Paul isn't making fun of them. He's seeking to kind of shake them out of their proud, self-centered thinking. He says, God has displayed us last. You know, the pictures of a Roman procession in Paul's day. Whenever a, a general would come and he had conquered, you know, he comes home from the war and he's conquered these lands and all, there would be this great parade through the city streets and toward the front of the parade was, you know, the nobles, the generals that he had conquered and captured and things would go on. But as the parade drew to an end there at the end, those displayed last would be the, the lowly soldiers, those who would be thrown to the lions and, and, and the wild beasts of the arena. And Paul says, that's us, man. He said, we've been made a spectacle is the word he used. The word's literally a the, the, a theater entertain you know it's like we've been made a theater to this world a spectacle to this world men condemned to die you want to be an apostle it's like signing your own death warrant he says it's like god has has laid our lives out like this remember jesus i will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake nailed to a cross upside down peter you know beheaded paul you know thrust through his spears boiled in oil these were the kinds of of ends that these guys met And I love what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 11. He starts talking about all these godly men. He says, of of whom the world was not worthy. And how the world treated them. He says, you know, we're men condemned to die, but man, you're up in the front of the parade. The idea, guys, is that there's something wrong with their perspective, What does it say when the apostles are fools, but they are wise? When the apostles are weak and feeble, almost embarrassing social figures to be around, but they're strong, they're admired by the world. The apostles were in a constant state of humiliation, but the Corinthians, you know, saw themselves in this state of exaltation, man. Like I said, they kind of had it going on. They had it all figured out. They were distinguished, but the apostles were dishonored. The point is this. Don't you think something is wrong, Paul says, when the world esteems you but disdains us? What does that say to you about you? Think about that. Guys, we're not too different today. You know, concerned with the image of worldly power and success, but the Corinthians despised Paul. They were embarrassed of him because he didn't create or craft or display that kind of image. He labored with his hands. That was the word, that was absolute like anathema to a Greek. They, they, I mean, that was slave, you know, uh, responsibility to labor and all. And Paul's like, look, I I, I work, man. You know, I bless those who were. Jesus said, bless those who curse you. Paul said, that's, that's what we're, about. He tried to peacefully reconcile with those who would defame him. You know, in other words, they were embarrassed. How embarrassing that Paul won't stand up for himself, that he won't slap the guy back who's, who's mouthing him or, or trying to ridicule him. What a wimp, you know, they would think. How embarrassing. But Paul is showing us that true godliness comes at a cost. You see, our problem is that we want the middle road, don't We we want a little popularity, little reputation, but still the anointing of God. We want power apart from cost. God help us to crucify the flesh, to count the cost and follow Jesus. Look at verse 14, he says, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, underline it, I urge you, imitate me. And for this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will notice, remind you of my ways as I teach in as I teach everywhere in every church. He says, look, I'm not trying to shame you guys. I love you. I'm trying to warn you. I mean, I I get it. You have all kinds of guys that come through and they're teaching you and they're telling you all kinds of things, but I'm the one, he says, I'm the one who led you to Christ, right? I'm the one who introduced you to Jesus. No one else has that place in your life. Now, it's not that leading someone to Jesus gives you this unique place of authority in their life. Of course, that would be true for Paul. But it does create a unique bond and a relationship that no one else gets to be in on, right? And he says, therefore, I urge you, and I love this about him, he says, imitate me. He didn't say, well, don't look to me, look to Jesus, you know. (laughs) He said, imitate me. Think about that. Guys, children learn first by example, then by explanation. And it's not like they could go grab a Bible down at the local bookstore in in Corinth, you know. They learn by watching the way Paul lived. uh, The things that he shared with them. And you've heard it said today, you know, your life might be the only Bible anyone ever reads. You know, what do they learn? People should be able to, to learn from us, from our example to them and for them and in front of them. And Timothy was there with them. And he would serve as a reminder to them. Timothy was kind of like Paul's troubleshooter. You know, he would send him uh, to struggling churches. He would dispatch him. and uh, And Paul gives them the benefit of the doubt, doesn't he? He says, I trust, guys, that you're not intentionally rebelling, right? But that you need a reminding of my ways. And I think, guys as our time's starting to kind of dwindle here, you know, we could apply that to our walks with the Lord. So often it's not that we uh, make deliberate, you know, we're not really seeking to rebel, but but we need a reminder. We need to make that deliberate effort to live in the conscious realization of the presence of Jesus Christ. Because I've discovered, maybe you have as well, that a remembrance of him oftentimes leads to a return to him. And that's what he's saying. We just need that reminder. We need that reminder. Finally, guys, verse 18, I appreciate your patience. Now some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. And I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. Notice, for the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. And so he says, What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? You know, some of them were like, You know, uh, Paul talks a big talk. Uh, but it's not like he's going to come and do anything about it. And Paul's like, don't flatter yourselves, man. I'll be there. Should the Lord will. And I love that. He's all, always like, Lord willing, I'll be there. And he reminds him, talk is cheap. I don't want to hear what you have to say. I want to see what you have to show. You see that? Our faith, you guys, isn't a matter of words it's displayed in our works high sounding words are really neat Peter called them great swelling words of emptiness there's a lot of hot air sound real good but God wants to see obedience in our lives right Paul assured them that he would come again and I just want you guys to know that Jesus does the same thing for you and me he's assured us he's coming and, and the ball is in our court. You know, how, how will he find us? It's up to you how he finds you. Will he find you a good and faithful servant and steward or unprofitable and unfit? Let's pray and uh, ask the Lord to renew our hearts, man, that we might walk more closely with him, being found faithful and well-pleasing to him.